Okay, this time it's for the children to be able to go through, back along through here. Ms. Anderson, we see others. Lydia. Okay. Got some of the other children, if they need to go over here, we go. All right. Oh, we got one more to go. Maybe two, we will see. Okay, let's pray. And Lord, we're grateful that we could be here today. We thank you for Aid's time and their graciousness to us. We thank you for the ministry that they have there, and we thank you that you're seen to be working in that in a great way. We thank you, Father, for your working in our lives and for our con congregation. And for that, we give you great praise. Lord, help us not to take for granted all the good things that you've given us, all the way that you've cared for us. And Lord, as we get closer, come to coming into our third anniversary, keep reminding us how good you have been to us how faithful you have been to us as a congregation, to us as individuals. Remind us just how great a late Savior you are and how thankful we are for all that you've done, all that you're doing. Lord, we thank you for the scripture that you gave us. We're so thankful that we have it. We have the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the written word, the scripture, the Bible that you've given us. Let us be people of the word, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've been working through a series in the book of Romans, and we come to a section now that is just a great passage of, great group of passages that are coming together. As you may remember, we've been working in this section, is that we have been going for the last three chapters have been very difficult, very important, but we were dealing with the issue that Paul had to deal with was what about the Jewish people, his own people? And we saw in the last three weeks that the Apostle Paul had to talk about the fact that saying, why is it that the people now, my own people, the Jewish people, have not come in, in part to come to faith in Christ? As Jesus is their Messiah. And Paul, we really spent, he spent three full chapters dealing with that issue about why is it that most of the Jewish people were coming. And he talked about the fact that there has been a veil over Israel until that time when God is going to take that veil away and they'll see Jesus as their Messiah and their King. And so from going from that very, very difficult section of three, per, of three passages that are very, very necessary, he now takes a different tack and he's going in a different direction and he's going to start focusing on a different way and a different action. We'll see it. We saw last time we were together, we were looking at Romans 9, 10, and 11 that we've been dealing with. But now he's going to start working on this issue. What does it mean? to look like as a Christian. What is it that God is asking of his people to do? He's going to deal four chapters on Christian living. 12, 13, 14, and 15. 15, I don't know if we put that up in that because most of it is, hi, tell Fred that I was there and tell the pastors I was over here. Uh, even that has got something that's significant for us. It's maybe not the, you know, most, the best one in the Bible, but it's still there. It's still God's word. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, in the time we get to it. But these four chapters, Paul is particularly focusing on, okay, you've come to Christ. You've recognized that he is your Lord and Savior. The question is, what is he asking of me? What is he calling me to do, to be? 
And that's exactly what he's going to be dealing, particularly in this first one, as we come to this passage coming up here. And what he's talking about here is saying, okay, there's a change that's going on. He's taking a move that he does, Paul does off, all, very, very often. He moves from the indicative. The indicative is what you are, what's your status, where are you at? And he says, we need to move that from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative is, here's where you're at, here's where you're at. We need to move on to the imperative. You need to move. The imperative is, what is it that God wants me to do? Get off your behind and go for what God has called you to do. And so he's calling you to say, from where you're at to where you're going, God's saying, I've got a work for you to do. We're not just going to sit around and listen about it. We're going to do it. And so what he's going to talk to is we're going to say, here's what it looks like to be a believer. And here are the things that God is asking his people to be motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bible, to write, we're starting here in chapter 1. Paul starts off this way, Therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Let's stop right there. Steve, yes? Chapter 12, you said chapter 1. Oh, did I? This is verse 1 of chapter 12. Thank you, John. Everybody's looking at the very first page. I can tell you it was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God looked and it was good. In fact, it was very good. Okay, so thank you. Now we're back on verse 1 where we need to be. Notice what he said. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you. It's interesting. That word urge is, can have, mean a couple things. It has, comes from this word parakaleo that we've heard before, this idea of the paraclete. And it can have that idea, the paraclete, the comfort, but it also has this idea of urgent, something that's urgent that you have to do. In fact, in Greek, you know, they can put the letters all different ways they want to do it. And this one starts off in the very beginning saying, urge I, you. In other words, I urge you. But he uses the word right up front, urge. This is what you got to do. And here's what God wants. He said, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, everybody that Paul was meeting and talking about, they knew all about sacrifice. The, you know, the Romans had did sacrifices. The Greeks had you know, sacrifices. They knew all about that. He's using what they know to help them understand what Paul was saying here. And he's saying, I want you to live a living sacrifice. We don't need a dead lamb up on the altar. We need a living Christian who is living their faith in Christ. And so that's why he's saying, you're to present, you urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And notice these terms that he uses to describe it. He said, you, would be a, you need to sacrifice holy. Again, the whole idea. Holy is that idea of separation, apart from the sin and the, of the world. Holy, pleasing to God. That's your spiritual worship. It's interesting, too, when he talks about that word spiritual worship, he uses this word latreia. We get the word liturgy that comes out of it. It's this idea of God is preparing us to be able to come to him in worship. And so this is a very common verse that we've come to, and he's going to go right to into a passage that's even maybe more known even more when we come to verse 2. And so Paul puts it this way, Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's stop there for a minute. That is a famous phrase. Many of us as kids memorize that passage. 
it's a great passage. The nice thing is, is it has a nice kind of assonance. It goes back, it goes nicely in this one. That is, don't be conformed, but be transformed. It sounds good. When you put it in Greek, it doesn't work that way. But that's okay, because we're not doing Greek. But the point is, it looks good. It has, don't be conformed to this age. Now, even right there, you need to stop for a second and say, wait a minute, we are surrounded by a culture in our world that is, for the most part, opposed to God. And so he's telling us, don't be conformed to that world. And yet the reality, we live in the world. Now, you could you know, be Amish. You could do that if you wanted. Kathy was saying she was walking down, or going driving around, and um, not far from where we live, and there was a person there, and they were bringing a goat with them, walking down the road. I thought, well, I don't think they're Amish, but maybe they decided to do so. I don't know. But his point is, don't be conformed to this age. And yet the reality is, we are bombarded with what our culture is telling us is important. What values? What's significant? What is it we need to know? What do we need to do to, to be serving the Lord? He's saying, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. By the way, word transformed, he, the word you can guess, metamorpho, we get word metamorphosis. Most of us in school learned about the metaphor, metamorphosis, and it, you know, the, the thing opens up and is a, such a pretty kind of thing. His point is he uses the same word, metamorphor, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is an interesting when he talks about renewing of your mind. It's saying we are bombarded with so many things that tells us this is what is good, this is what values, this is what's significant. And Paul's saying, no, that's not what's important here. And so what he's saying is you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can discern what is good, pleasing in the perfect will of God. Now, how do we know that? How do we know what those things are? Well, that's why God gave us the Bible. And he gave us Christians, and he gave us people that we work with, and people that we have, are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, don't be conformed to this age. That's hard, not to, do, hard to do. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to discern what is good, pleasing, I mean, at the end of the day, we want God to be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. To do that means we're going to have to say no to some things that our culture would tell us it's okay. And we have to be willing to say, you know, I'm not going there. I don't think this is pleasing to God. And it may mean for us that somebody might laugh at us, or it may be hard for a high school student of saying, really, what's wrong with you? How come you're not doing X, Y, and Z? Because it's saying, I'm sorry, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I can't do that. That's hard for us as adults. It's even harder for young people, Christian young people. So notice he said, so we have the perfect will of God. Notice what he goes on here. What he does is he now takes a sudden another tack. He's going in a different direction. But he says this in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I think everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. This is going to be a theme we're going to see throughout this passage. It's a relatively short passage. But he's going to deal with this issue, particularly that deals with pride. And this goes with it as well. Not thinking of yourself highly than you should think. You know, a lot of us, you know, we're just kind of a somebody, we, we think we've got it all together. And we sort of think that, you know, everybody else is stupid. We're the smart ones. And what he's saying is, you know, maybe there's more you need to learn. And so he makes it clear. He said, instead, think sensibly 
as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now that's a little bit of an odd phrase. It's like, you get two cents and you get a little of this. Somehow it has that idea of God has given each of us some faith and he wants us to grow in that faith as well. Now notice what he does. He said now, and he's just gonna use something that he used before. In chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe he uses this analogy. It's the analogy of God bringing the fact that we have a person, we have one body, but we have multiple people, and that idea, the sense that we're connected to one another. We'll see what we see in this passage. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It's a great metaphor that's worked for a long, long time. It's the fact that we know we have a body, we have this. And the thing is, you can say, we, good thing is the fact that we need each other. I think this is particularly important for us as a church. If you're a church of 5,000 or something, uh, maybe that's not as important. Because there's a lot of people you'll never know at that church. But at a church our size, there ought to be an opportunity that we really understand what it means when he talks about we have one body and we have the idea of the many parts. It says you absolutely need people involved. And we have to recognize the fact that we respond to God in that way. So he says, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It's that idea of you belong. You belong to each other. We don't do this often, but I know when I was young, as a kid, but we used the word brother. Brother Bill, brother so-and-so, you know, that was a thing. You don't hear that as much, but it is an idea. It's saying we're, we're connected to each other. We're family. And that's one of the things, of course, we're hoping to continue to grow in our church. It's an understanding of the fact that we need each other. Now, a lot of us, and let me just say guys, a lot of us are like, oh, I don't need anybody else to be helping me. I've got it all figured out. Saying, no, actually, we need each other. We need each other deeply. And so when he talks about this, he says, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. In other words, if one part is taken out, there's something wrong. If you get your arm taken off, you're going to miss that arm. And he's using that same analogy to try to make the point about we absolutely need to depend upon one another, which means you begin by knowing who everybody is. And I really encourage you, this is one thing we need to do, is make sure we know who everybody is, that we can be there to help and to encourage them. So notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. And what he does, he, get, he counts some of the ones that we have and how we need to use them. Notice this, if prophecy, remember this before, this is one of the first things he said, in a time when they did not have the Bible or it was in the process of being written, it was necessary to have prophets who could tell them what God would want them to do. So he said, okay, if you got the gift of prophecy, well then use it according to the standard of faith. What you know of the Bible, what you know, you need to do this. So he says, if, verse seven, if it's service, you need to serve. Now, let me stop for a minute. Back in the 70s and early 80s, there was an awful lot of attention and money that was spent on people taking a test on what is my spiritual gift. On one side, that was a really helpful thing. For some people, it helped them say, I didn't really know that I had that opportunity and that I had that gift of doing that. That was good. That was the good side. 
The bad side, maybe it wasn't bad, but the not so good side was you have people saying, well, my gift was only this, and therefore I can't do anything else. Say, so, whoa, 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 you're not getting the whole story here. Like, well, I'm sorry, I don't have the gift of changing diapers. Somehow, I don't remember Paul ever talking about that. I think he assumed that all of us understand that we belong to each other. And so when Paul is saying, okay, if it's service, well then serve. And then he goes, if teaching, then you need to teach. If exhorting, which is a phrase we don't use that much, in exhortation, there's times we have to speak up. In exhortation, he talks about giving with generosity. Do it generally. Gen generally. He says, leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. It's interesting. Some people have made them, have, under, um, have pointed out that Paul is actually kind of using here, he's using a lot of these different phrases. And it reminds him like the book of Proverbs, where you have some of these, you know, one after another, where he's talking about what are the things that God is calling us to do. So notice what he does. And this is a beautiful little section. He said, love must be without hypocrisy. Now think about that. Love must be without hypocrisy. You know, you can look good, but you still may be a hypocrite inside. And it's pretty easy to fall into that. Because we can look good, we can say the right things, rank three, you know, have the right songs, but the reality is our humility. Paul's going to spend quite a bit on dealing with issue that deals with pride. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling with what is good. Now notice this first. Show family affection. In Greek, it is the Greek word Philadelphia. That's what that word means. Philadelphia. We used to call it the city of brotherly shove. Okay, is what we called it. Okay, I live there. I can say that. You can't, okay? <laughs> Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. And then I love this phrase, outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't it a lot of times that that's the opposite of what we do? We see somebody who gets some kind of award, and we wouldn't say it, but we're a little bit discouraged because, or we're a little bit angry because they got that honor and I didn't get that honor. And, and how easy that, that Satan uses that to let that start boiling in our heart. And he said, hey, no. Outdo one another in showing honor. Well, that doesn't come naturally to me. Well, he says, that's why you got the Holy Spirit to help you to grow in that area. Notice he says, don't lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This passage right now, verse 11, is very important because the reality, a lot of us in many different endeavors, whether we're talking about maybe the workplace that you're at or what you're doing or your hobby or even here in church, sometimes we start off and we're so excited we started this, maybe this new ministry and we're doing that and it's such an exciting thing. We're so glad we're doing that and after one year, it's not quite as excitement and after two years, it's like, yeah, I've been there, done that, you know, got the t-shirt kind of thing. And then he's, what happens to us, we just start to get a little bit more tired. We get a little bit more like, you know, been there, done that, heard the message, really not that interested. And it's interesting because Paul's saying, you know what? Don't lack in diligence. Be fervent in the spirit. John Wesley, I love the statement that he did. Listen to what he said now that I ripped the paper. Okay. John Wesley said this, do all you can by all means that you can, 
in all ways that you can, in all places you can, to all people you can, as long as you ever can. I guess he works the word can a lot. But his point is, we have to be careful because over time, things that are very big and important to us, I hate to say it, but sometimes maybe even marriage. It was so exciting, and it's like now it's one year, now it's two years, like 10 years, and it's like, well, hi, how are you, kind of thing. It's not what God wants, obviously. It's not what we should want. But it's easy for us to get stale. We go through the motions, do the right things, but it's saying, is your heart in any way being touched by the Spirit of God to give you the strength to be the woman, the man, the leader that he would ask you to be? Notice what he says. Rejoice in hope. You know, it's easy to be hopeful when everything's going well for you. But what if you're being persecuted? What if in the time of the Apostle Paul that people lost their jobs because they found out they were Christians and they didn't know how they're going to feed themselves? He says, rejoice in hope. We still have hope in the midst of all this. Be patient in affliction. That's a hard one. A lot of times when we're suffering, it's real easy to get whiny. It's real easy to get, you know, like, nobody knows the problems I'm going through. Well, we do have real problems. We don't mean that that's something that's not real. But he is saying, you need to be patient. God's timetable is so different than ours. And he's calling us to be patient. Be persistent in prayer. Paul keeps coming back to the absolute necessity of prayer. He recognizes that God uses prayer to, to do what he needs us to do, to share with to, to serve with him. He says, share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. In the ancient world of that time, that was very important. You know that many of the people who were, who were Christian leaders, they were traveling from place to place, and you went to the place, maybe you wanted to you know, stop for dinner or stop for the night. Um, you often didn't have good places. They might have a, you know, a bar there. Um, there might be what they used to call a body house, a place where your wife would not want you to be stopping for the night. Uh, in other words, you don't want your pastor to be at one of these places that, where there's a lot of things going on that you, your husband or wife would not be thrilled about. And so he's saying, we need hosp hospitality is crucially important to open up our homes. I realize for some of us, it's hard. I mean, life is busy, and we've got struggles and stuff, but I don't think this thing has changed. Hospitality is still what God is calling for his people. And sometimes, like, well, our house is not the nicest house in the neighborhood. Who cares? We come to worship. We come to be together. It doesn't matter. But notice what he said. Pursue hospitality. Now, notice what he says. Now, here he takes another tack, and here he takes it directly from Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Let me tell you what, that's easy to read. It's the living it that's the hard thing. Bless those who persecute you. Everything in our heart says, I'll get you back. And Jesus said, no you won't. Not if you're going to be my follower. Bless those who persecute. Bless and don't curse particularly in the ancient world where curses were considered very important. I'm putting a curse on you, the evil eye. Paul says, uh-uh, that's not for a believer. That's not what we're doing. In fact, notice he takes that and he quotes right from Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray. 
Bottom said, yeah, I pray. I pray that they die quick, you know, or die slowly maybe. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's get right from Jesus. He's making it pretty clear. You don't have to have a PhD in Greek to be able to get what he's talking about. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Most of us have not experienced persecution in that sense. But if you lived in Iraq, Iran, Syria, and you're trying to live a life that's honoring to Christ, you may really experience great persecution. You could even be killed for the fact that you follow Christ. When ISIS first started, you may remember one of the things that happened. They told some people, you can either become a Muslim or you can pay a huge amount of money and we'll let you keep your house or we might just kill you. And there were some people, a small group of them, said, well, I'm just going to become Muslim because we can't lose our house. We can't lose what we have. The other one said, I'm not doing what you want me to do. And they cut their heads off. None of us know what we would do if we were there at that time. We'd like to think that we'd be, I'm strong for Jesus. You can count on me, Lord. I don't know. When they came walking by and they're getting ready to cut my head off, whether I might not say, you know, maybe Muslim is not that bad after all. I hope not. I don't think we would know, but the whole point is the Lord is here. I'll give you the strength in the midst of persecution. And of course, what we know is in the second and third century, particularly when the, when the suffering became even worse under Diocletian and the other ones, it was awful. But there were many, many people, women and men, who were willing to go through the torture to be killed out of faith in Christ. Tragically, some of the bishops gave in to the Romans. They didn't made it easy for them. Here's a little thing, just a little incense. Just have a little incense that shows that you are connected here to the Roman world and we'll let you go. And some of the people said, we're not doing that. And they said, we're going to kill you. We're going to burn you. Okay, go ahead. But there were even bishops that caved in. Of course, one of the big questions for the church in the third and fourth century is, what do you do if your pastor or your bishop was one of the ones who did, in the sense, paid the little thing and got out of it. Should you let that pastor go back and be a pastor or a bishop? Those are hard issues for people to deal with. Look what Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Yesterday afternoon I was at a funeral. Fortunately I was not doing it, but I was there. 26-year-old young man who's in the same Bo um, Boy Scout group that we're in, David and I, Troop 437. Uh, young man, uh, 26 years old. He um, had breathing issues. They came in the next morning and checked him, and he was cold dead on the floor. What do you say to the parents that are crying as you walk by them? Here's their son, 26 years old, and he's dead. I walked by there. I know the couple. They go to the Friday Bible study that I teach. And just saying, I'm sorry, seems so weak. I mean, what do you really say? You can't bring him back to dead. I mean, Jesus can, but we're not. And you just think, this is a family that has struggled so much. 
I think it was four years earlier, their son was in a massive um, tragic. She was, he was riding a motorcycle and hit it full on in a, in a brick uh, row. And it just smashed his face in. He had to have multiple, multiple surgeries to get him back going again. And they made a point saying, well, we thought we lost that one son. He's alive. We're glad for that. This one, we're just shocked. He had, he had breathing problems, and when they looked for him in the morning, he was dead. This is what this passage is saying. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Can you weep with those that are weeping? Can your heart be touched? Can you be a male and still weep with others because of recognizing the brokenness of this world? Look what Jesus, I mean, what this passage says. Be in agreement with one another. Don't be proud. He keeps coming back to this issue of pride. But it makes sense. You know, early on, some of the early church fathers were trying to say, what was the ultimate thing that caused Adam and Eve? Some people say, well, they disobeyed. God told them, you know, if you just, you know, don't eat this, you're going to be okay. And they said that would be the thing that caused Adam and Eve and the whole destruction of our world and that kind of stuff. St. Augustine took it another way. He said, no, the major thing which messed up our whole world is pride. Because before that, he was this, we, what we think, but who became Lucifer, was beautiful, un unbelievably beautiful and smart and everything, and he went to the dark side, so to speak. And because of that, humanity came into this destruction of the world. And his point said, that's why pride is so dangerous, and yet it is so common among all of us. Don't be a proud. Instead, associate the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay evil for evil. Try to do what's honorable in everyone's eyes. Verse 18 is very important because that's a very important verse. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. In other words, Paul is really recognizing the fact that there are times that you can get into situations that there is just no way to fix it. There's times where there's no way to really to resolve the issue. And he's saying, as much as it's possible on your part, as much as you have tried to bring reconciliation in the relationship and it's not, there are times when you say, you know what, it's not going to happen this way until we go to be with Christ or Christ comes for us. We hope it's not going to be that way. But Paul is a realist and he realizes it doesn't always come that way. Friends, he said, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I'll repay, says the Lord. And then he uses an unusual phrase. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, he's given something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. And God goes, what? I thought the whole point of this passage was about being kind to one another and sharing for each another. And and I, I would take this understanding that this is metaphorical. I don't think Paul is actually putting hot coals on people's head. Uh, I think what he is basically saying, so it, what's happening here is that maybe in the fact that you are responding to this person in such a way that there would be repentance in their heart of saying, you know what, I was wrong, would you forgive me? But it is an unusual phrase. Notice what he says, don't be conquered by evil. In this world, it's so easy to be conquered by evil, to go down the dark side, as you want to call it. 
and it's easy to get that way, but conquer evil with good. He didn't say with a machete. He didn't say with a gun. It's the way we respond to people through Jesus Christ. This passage, I want to give you a suggestion of something you might want to try to do. Paul has listed several different things that show a life of a person who's a believer. And I'd encourage you to read this passage again and ask the Lord to ask you this. Lord, is there a certain area here where I'm deficient, where I'm not doing well, where this is something that I'm struggling in? And Lord, would you help me by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in that area? I can't imagine that there's anyone in this room, if we're honest, would be able to say, there is room for me to grow spiritually. And to ask yourself, going back through these passages we just saw, what would he be, God maybe be asking you to do? What was he asking you to be? To be the full follower that he's called you to be. It may be a little discouraging, but it ought to be ultimately encouraging of realizing God is committed to you to help you and me to grow to be the women and the men that he wants us to be. To have an impact that's going to touch the lives of many, many people. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for this chapter, which is so profound. Father, we pray that you give us humility. Lord, you know so many times when we're not having showing humility that our arrogance just leads to so much trouble and suffering. Help us to be men and women that know you, that serve you. And we pray, Lord, that we would see you at work in our lives. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.